0: Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. Gunjan Kedia, what a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. This has been a highly anticipated conversation for many of our listeners. First of all, how are you today and where are you calling in from?
1: Uh, I'm calling in from uh, Pittsburgh and it's a real pleasure to be with you, Ross. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much, Gunjan. We have A finite amount of time, and you have infinite wisdom to share. So I want to jump right in. Gunjan, you've had an incredible journey from going to school in Delhi to across the world at U.S. Bank. Can you tell us a bit more about your background and experiences in the financial services industry?
1: It does feel quite incredible, even all these years later. Uh, So this uh, journey really started in the mid-90s. I was uh, studying engineering in Delhi with not one thought of showing up in the finance industry in the US. But my dad got a late in life opportunity to join the World Bank in Washington DC. And uh, he wanted to pay for my MBA, although it was a very big part of his total compensation. So I took a plane for the first time in my life and showed up at Carnegie Mellon. And they had a very strong finance program and wonderful faculty. So here I am.
0: Well, I appreciate, I would say, the humility. I would even say the modesty in your summary of your story. You spent eight years at McKinsey earlier in your career. How did your experience as a management consultant impact your work in finance? And would you recommend that pathway to others earlier in their careers?
1: Oh, my, I will tell you, I quite strongly recommend both engineering as well as consulting to anyone who has the aptitude and the interest to follow those careers. You know, they both give you a very strong foundation in critical thinking, fact-based point of views, data analysis, and in consulting, um, because you are working in many different industries and many different functions, and teams come together from really all over the globe, your client cultures are very different, you learn to sort of learn very quickly to ask questions Uh, you get quite effortlessly used to collaboration to accepting diversity and just being in tune with different cultures and I think these are all skill sets that come in handy for whatever career you eventually settle in so I am a big fan of uh, both consulting and engineering if you can do that.
0: I really appreciate that, Gunjan. I will say for myself, I had started a small consulting firm in the beginning of college. And I tell a lot of our students that it really helped me learn how to think. I get a lot of students asking, what should I major in? And they're like, do I need a finance or economics degree to get into finance? And I often say, no, you don't. But if I had to give you advice on a major to choose, it would be a major that helps you learn how to think philosophy, psychology, economics, engineering, among them. I appreciate the recommendation for both engineering and consultants. I'm curious. I with your.
1: That a basic finance class helps regardless of whether you're going to be in finance or not, because so much of what we do is interpreting numbers. My son is taking a basic in accounting class. He's a computer science engineering major. And he comes to say, what is purchase accounting? What is gap accounting? And I'm like, yes. And thank God I'm not taking that class. <laughs> but it's a it's a good foundation for everybody, I think, at least.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're like, excellent question. I'm glad you're asking. And I'm glad <laughs> someone else is teaching you. Yes. <laughs> um, Gunjan, you... Um, Again, we're very succinct in sort of giving the overview of your story. Can you share with our listeners your role today at U.S. Bank? What do you do at U.S. Bank today?
1: Yeah, thank you, Ross. So, you know, I will go back a little bit to tell your audience sort of what my path has been. I graduated from Carnegie Mellon and joined consulting. I was first with PwC in Washington, D.C., And after that, McKinsey and gravitated towards finance uh, industries, you know, from retail banking to asset management. Um, Today, I am leading the wealth management and investment management businesses within U.S. Bank Corp. And those incorporate everything from sort of a first time investor to family offices who have multi-billion, multi-generational wealth. We also have asset management. So we have our own sort of products. And we also do investment servicing, which is a very operationally and technology intensive businesses that support back office of other um, asset managers. But I got into this career through sort of various sort of steps along the way. You know, consulting we've talked about already. It was 10 years at McKinsey. And in 2003, we were fortunate enough to have our first child. And that was quite difficult for me to balance with my consulting career. Consulting is very good in many dimensions, but it's a demanding career. And we were living in Pittsburgh, so I traveled a lot to my clients outside of the... And I was just not seeing baby anywhere. And I remember this one time, I was in Nashville coming back. um, And all these years later, I remember this, so you can tell it was impactful to me. And I had timed it perfectly. I was going to be home by 7 because our baby used to sleep off at 730 And the flight was 40 minutes late. And I was like, I'm not doing this, you know. So I joined a long-term client of mine, Mellon Bank, also in the same city. And from that sort of progressively moved on to more uh, general management um, roles. Uh, So that's sort of been the the career arc of um, sort of deepening my career within the finance industry.
0: Gunjan, thank you for the overview and and the deeper dive. Um, Really appreciate it. Well, what an incredible role, right, to be on the management committee of the fifth largest bank in the United States. You've been so successful as a leader in multiple fields and now in finance. One thing we like to ask all of our guests that I'm dying to to ask you, you know, I've talked to you a little little bit about this privately in our one-on-ones, but I'm, I'm excited for you to share more broadly with our audience. What are some of the values, the principles, the traits, the paradigms that you think have contributed the most to your success and your impact throughout your career?
1: You know, I'll um, uh, Thank you for that question. I feel very, it's a very narcissistic question because for the next few minutes, I'll just talk about my own greatness, but I will, you know, a lot of what makes you successful is not specific to the finance industry. It's just sort of skills of competence. And, you know, by competence, I don't mean like you should know a particular trade very well. That, I think, is a very learning skill, but it's sort of a habit of excellence when you demand of yourself high-quality work each day and push yourself to do the best you can. And I always say this is not about competing with sort of somebody else who started with you. It is about competing with yourself, though. You know, when you see people uh, very early in their careers trying to just be better than yourself yesterday, I find that to be a very encouraging skill set because if you keep that habit of excellence up in your life, you will just naturally say, I didn't know something yesterday. I'm going to know it. I'm going to read it. So this lifelong habit of just sort of competing only with yourself and your yesterday self and just sort of upping your skills just at your own pace, but in a very sort of purposeful, relentless way is a very good quality to bring And then there is a temperament set of qualities, collaboration, knowing that a team will always perform better than yourself. And if your behaviors can be adjusted a little bit for the betterment of the team, that's a really good mindset people bring early on. Ability to change, you you know, ability to be really good at something and three years later say, now it's a different world and I'm going to shed my habits and relearn my habits. This concept of sort of relearning your own strengths is a very good characteristic. Um, You know, if I reflect on myself, some of my traits are sort of slightly different from many other very successful people I'd like to, you know, I had a lot of courage, the ability to speak truth to power. Even when I was a very young consultant, I could go into a CEO's office and say, when asked, um, you know, that your team is not aligned around your vision. That takes a lot of courage to be able to tell somebody Who's very senior, but these are what I call conviction, integrity, high honesty ways of sort of courage and um, speaking out and um, bringing light to issues that are good for the organization, but might create some personal risk is a good quality. You know, I'll also reflect more recently because, you know, a lot of what uh, your audience might do in the early part of the career uh, sort of becomes a little bit more second nature. And we reflect more on success from the standpoint of just our industry, for example, you know. You know, while we are just a business like any other business, there is a different kind of obligation, Ross, that comes from being responsible for other people's money. Because money to most people is not just a number. You know, it's a pathway to a life they want to live. It's a pathway to what they want to do for their children, what they want to leave for their grandchildren. Sometimes it's the difference between being able to provide sort of unique medical support to a family member or just a bucket list travel or buy the house if you dream. It's a lot of people's lives and we in our industry have the ability to impact that positively and negatively. So it gives you a different sense of obligation for what we do. And most of your people are tuned in to finance. But I will tell you, most of our customers are not. They kind of find it challenging. They find it scary. They find it extremely boring sometimes. And it is stressful to most people. So our job, in addition to just any other company's obligation to deliver good products, is to safeguard people's lives and dreams. And I feel some part of our success, our and when I say our, I feel leaders that do well in finance comes from carrying that obligation very close to your heart and never letting it become just a product or you know, or just a
0: statistic. And there's so much to unpack in what you've shared. Harkening back to my point about infinite wisdom to share, we don't have enough time in the week to unpack everything that you've just elaborated on. I want one thing I do wanna dive into is. In your experience when you think about those moments in your career where you had to speak up with courage and integrity you mentioned earlier as you said in a way that might carry some personal or interpersonal risk as you grew as a leader over time you know what sort of narratives or experiences or maybe it was just practice you know how did you grow and develop courage right how did you over time develop the courage and strength to speak up more boldly, more regularly, you know, with, with less reservation.
1: Courage comes to people in so many different ways. Um, So I, you know, in no way do I want to sort of pretend like there's one path to, or lecture people on courage because, you know, Ross, when people don't show courage, it's not because they don't have personal desire or personal courage. Sometimes the circumstances put other people in trouble. So I just have, this is a very sensitive sort of topic to be very careful of. But, you know, I grew up in a very sort of loving family and I was sort of a brazen kid because of that, because I had mom and dad to take care of me. And I sort of believed that fundamentally that, you know, they would have my back when I speak up. But what I have found, which is the message I always like to give when I talk about courage is, most people think the outcomes or consequences of speaking up will be more negative than they end up being. And the upside of doing that will be less positive than it ends up being. So I would say to you, for me, my first sets of acts of courage were out of outrage because I would see something happening and I can share a story and I'll just leave some of the specifics out just to protect the companies I was with at the time. But I um, was in a consulting team, and remember this is the early 90s, and we were um, stationed at a very sort of conservative part of the world, and our team leader was a gay man, very competent, but one of the rare openly gay men. And our client, not a mean person at all, did say to our sort of uh, lead partner that, this environment will be very challenging for this individual because consulting engagements can be challenging in any way. And this, him being openly gay would make it that much harder for him to succeed. And we should consider swapping him out. Now, I was also a diverse person on the team, which was not a fact that was lost to me. And I felt both the outrage of what the ask was around my team member and the guilt of the fact that they didn't point me out for some reason as also being equally very complex set of emotions. But our team that evening, without actually overthinking it, all resigned from that engagement and all said, "We are not going to work on this. Our outrage was not really necessary because I have to tell you that company didn't even need us. They had a very, very uh, simple uh, response to that to say, we support diversity. This is our team. And if you don't like us, we are withdrawing from the engagement. As it turned out, that manager was who asked that was asked to step away. Now, I spent a lot of time on the story because one is, it's memorable to me after all these years, but I have to tell you, it gave me more courage to say, hey, I spoke up at that point, nothing bad happened. In fact, I discovered that my firm was actually wonderful. So, you know, there are lots of times when you speak up against something you don't think is right or in behalf of yourself or someone else. And I would just say try it before you get get worried about it.
0: Thanks, Gunjan. I don't think anyone listening feels like you're lecturing. I'm sure all of us (laughs) feel touched by the story you shared. I'd imagine, I'll speak for myself, can relate with different elements of the story that you've shared from my own experiences. And I'm really grateful that you, you you did unpack that a bit. I'd love to sort of dive into leadership a little bit more. And as we're talking about courage, talk about compassion and a few other of our, our values that we we oftentimes teach at Scholars of Finance. Um, you spoke with Devin Benerjee uh, a bit over a year ago about leading to the pandemic. You shared that, quote, it took a lot of ingenuity to lead with focus and a calming influence, end quote. Can you elaborate on what you meant by that and how you reflect on that period of leadership a year later?
1: Oh, thank you for mentioning that. It was such a great conversation with Devin. You know, he, like you, uh, is a very good interviewer. Um, You know, this was about a year into the pandemic. And um, the pandemic at that point had settled into a very real reality for all of us. But there was no end in sight, you know, so it wasn't, it was a period of real flux. Um, There was a lot else that had happened at that time in our country, as you can imagine. Political divisiveness, uh, the George Floyd uh, sort of outrage was um, very raw, especially to us in Minneapolis there was sort of a national conversation happening on things that we don't usually talk about at work. So I give you that context to explain my mindset as a leader as I was having that conversation. I do think now, 18 months after that, um, some of that is very real. Leadership has changed, at least to me, in the last three years. The demands of leaders are broader. It used to be, or at least my impression of work was that you separated it out from life. You came in as sort of, you know, the Borg, you know, we all behave, we all dressed the same. There was a protocol to what we talked about as a young woman, that protocol completely excluded elements of sort of stress with your children, stress with your home family, you know, that was sort of the default expectation of how people thought they were expected to show up. It's not that today, when something meaningful happens, like a Supreme Court decision or police brutality video or a mass shooting or a second mass shooting or a devastating fire or any number of things like an unexpected war in Europe people bring that to work and it impacts the way they are focused that day. And they look to us as leaders to give them some context for how to make sense of it or how we are being respectful for their needs for a different level of support. And it puts a broader, more fun, I would say, more human burden of leadership than just setting your strategies, your priorities, your resources, and your metrics and, you know, I just sometimes say I didn't take a class on all of that stuff in business school. And um, that is very real. It's a very human part of leadership. And I, I'm not sure I know how to do it. And certainly when I was talking about that interview, I was very full of like, how do we do this? Are we good at it? Where's the book? who's going to teach us what words are acceptable. And obviously there was none of that. And all you could do is rely on your instinct and your sort of friendships with your people to to be the person they needed us to be at that point, not the person sort of, you know, you think you have to be. So it was a very, that was my comment to say, at least to me personally, it took some level of creativity, some level of experimentation to just sort of, be aligned, be supportive, and still be focused because our clients needed us to. Mm. We needed to be able to just sort of put all of that aside and be there for our clients as well. It was a good, right. it was interesting.
0: Yeah, what's really interesting in what you said is how leadership has become much more human and how you have to serve your clients amidst these very human times. And in a lot of areas within finance, functions within finance, it's actually becoming less human. There's been a lot of attention in the last few years on robo-advisory technology, yeah. Both to displace traditional wealth management and also to supplement or augment it. Um, one of my alma maters, SoFi, you know, this was a differentiator for us, right? The performance of our our automated investment products. What are your thoughts on what the right role is for robo-advisory, both in terms of clients and financial advisors? Well,
1: I'll tell you, digital capabilities. Are not inconsistent with being human. That's sort of my belief because it just makes us, it takes the worst of the irritations of being human out because there are some things you can just do so much faster and better. I'll tell you the robo advisory product, which I will disclaim, I love our automated investor product, is our attempt to provide advice in a cost effective way to first time investors who traditionally have not been able to access advice until much later in their life. So how do people's lives progress? You don't really have the ability to hire a financial advisor the first time you have your first $1,000 to invest. But you know from the work you do, Ross, that time is your friend. And if you can get just the right advice to start investing, saving not develop bad habits around credit or spend or learn to balance your budgets earlier, when you look back 30, 40 years, your wealth and your financial outcomes will be fundamentally better. So this is our way of having a very interesting digital tool be able to tell you what are the questions you should be asking and based on your answers, here's our advice on how do you get started. With something as little as $1,000, you can set up on your website that every time you get a paycheck, take $20 and put it into an investing portfolio. And at any time, you can click a button, a licensed advisor will come on and help you through a question that you're not able to manage on your own. So I think it's a wonderful way to bring advice to people earlier.
0: I appreciate that my fiance is kicking off her investment game we'll say and i've actually been encouraging her just to use the these robo advising products she's like oh, like i'm sure a lot of you know clients you have and that your large t- organization you oversee manage and serve are probably like, oh, I've got a thousand dollars. What stock do I buy? And they think they have to, you know, (laughs) self-direct their trades. And it's like, no, actually there are experts who can just do it for you at little to no cost. (laughs)
1: That's wonderful. And, you know, tell Maya, that's your fiance, right? To say, yay. I I always, I am sort of, I I feel like a fundamentally personal joy when I see somebody begin (laughs) to sort of engage in their financial affairs because everything from that point onwards is good. Just engage in your financial affairs.
0: There's a lesson for all of our listeners in what you just said that you fundamentally feel like you said you feel a fundamental personal joy when someone begins that. I mean, if that doesn't say, Gunjin, that you're in the right role, what does? (laughs) So for anyone listening, this is a high watermark. If you have a job and every time the thing you're supposed to do happens, you fundamentally feel joy. You hit the bullseye. You know, you've reached Ikigai, um, the, the Japanese concept for a good life. You nailed it. Gunjan, as we're talking about a lot of the technological advances in finance, could you walk us through some of the research and reasoning behind creating a cryptocurrency custody offering for the bank's institutional fund manager clients?
1: Yes, thank you. You know, we launched this product, it's a very successful launch of a product that will be very early to the market here, to do, provide custody for crypto assets that an, within an investment portfolio, with all of the regulatory and compliance uh, protocols that come from a bank custody product. What was what we were hearing from our customers at that point was the search for an uncorrelated asset class. And just given what's happening in the last year, you'll understand why there was a search for an inflation-resistant uncorrelated investment class, because so many asset classes have been moving in correlation to each other over the la- last year. That market had ballooned to two, two and a half trillion. And while it started with largely sort of a young retail sort of audience, it had become a fair amount of institutional asset managers that believed that there was something there. And so the product was created not, with a, not to have a message about what we believed about crypto, but the message was we will support our customers' investment strategies regardless of where they choose to take them. Because that's sort of, you know, we administer 10 trillion in assets under manage across a whole range of asset managers. And they wanted uh, enough of our clients wanted to see us sort of provide that service that we sort of got into it. It's a very interesting, interesting, divisive, energetic space with a lot going on. And it does remind me a little bit of sort of where hedge funds were 30, 40 years back or derivatives were, you know, we've had these big shifts in um, big shifts in the finance industry and it starts with sort of a lot of uh, debate discussion turbulence uncertainty and then it settles in different ways and so that that chapter still has to be written
0: right it's interesting the debate the discussion that you're you're referencing with you know past asset classes new types of investment vehicles that emerged Um, this is one of my reasons I love having guests on the podcast to have 20, 30 years of experience to speak to, you know, one of the big debates that we hear on wall street and main street alike is you know about the socioeconomic system itself about capitalism and while you know history shows capitalism has been the single most effective economic system for rapidly increasing you know collective prosperity and flourishing one of its very obvious and well known and studied deficiencies is that that adam smith predicted um if you if anyone listening has read any of his books i've read wealth of nations and the theory of moral sentiments two of my favorite works of literature and you know he says one of the potential risks of this system essentially is, you know, massive inequality and we we've seen what that does to our social fabric in the last several years especially with occupy wall street, you know, not too far in the rearview mirror. And while capitalism is a beautiful system and it needs to improve and evolve to make sure that there aren't billions of people left behind, I understand that you and your team at US Bank have really really brought urgency to the need for equal access to wealth management based on your research on women, on Black investors, on other disadvantaged populations. Would love it if you can speak to that a little bit, your passion for making sure there's equal access and what you're doing to drive that forward.
1: Yeah, well, it's a big space and it's a big, complex, hairy topic. Uh, so I'll maybe take a, take a little bit of uh, sort of tour down memory lane here. You know, capitalism comes from the word capital. That's sort of in the name. And the financial system, even today, largely provides the capital for all human endeavour. And if you have an inequality in access to capital, you will always have an inequality with the outcomes of capital, which are businesses, entrepreneurship, and, you know, buildings, mortgages, like you, you, you name it, you know, capital is the starting point of it. I was an outsider to the system for a long time, or I felt I was an outsider to to the system. Even today, Ross, when I am with my sort of broad Indian family, and the Indian community in the US is a very wealthy, very well-off community. So we're not talking about sort of education gaps. We're not talking about sort of wealth gaps. We're just talking about sort of cultural um, minority gaps. They will tell me that the system does not feel welcoming to all of them, even today. So I have very much been in tune with why that is, what makes people feel like that? Is it really our industry? Is it the perception of the industry? Is it lack of knowledge of available choices? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. It's all of the above that comes together though into an outcome that is not good, which is women and minorities and many sub-communities feel like our system is not as accessible to them as it should be. So that's our work. You know, our we had a passionate group of people that didn't want to be superficial in our solutions here. So we spent a lot of time doing very in-depth research. Our first one was women and wealth. That was a topic that was very personal to me. Um, the second one we did was building black wealth. And now we are in the market with research around very young investors because we are trying to now understand what the impact of the last two years of extraordinary turbulence where markets went up, the Reddit bets, the Wall Street bets, the the phenomenon of sort of the GameStop era, we call it, and then the sudden crash. And what does that do to a generation of future investors? We're trying to understand that with the research that's in the market. But going back to women and minorities, we learned many things And at the risk of broadly generalizing, there are unique patterns, and that's the solutions that we are building. So one thing is people need to feel a level of trust with the person they are talking to. That's how they accept that a loan being offered to them is a good loan and not something that will damage them. Or advice, when you say invest in this or that, is actually right and not for our benefit, but for their benefit. Trust is a very important situation. How do you feel trust? You feel trust when somebody you are talking to has lived your experience. You feel trust when the words being used by your advisor are not tone deaf. You feel trust when there's transparency of product sets and language that is understandable by people. So these are all the things we are working on. More diverse advisors, more transparency, more financial literacy, more training, awareness and subconscious bias uh, on vocabulary. So this is, you know, this is a long game. I'll be dead and gone before we completely close this gap. But it is a marathon. So every step matters along the way. So that's sort of the nature of the research and the na- nature of the work that we are embarking. on.
0: I really appreciate you sharing, I think a pretty broad and nuanced perspective. What you mentioned is a really complex topic with a lot of nuance. One thing that you, you shared that I want to pull on is this notion that you said you'll be dead and gone before we close the gap. It's interesting to hear you say that. I think a lot of, um, you know, for our younger listeners or college students listening, even for our early to mid-career professionals who are listening to based on my conversation, some of like the, you know, C-suite executives listening to this podcast, they set goals that have a end point within their lifetime. And you see time and time again, when people do this and they hit those goals they suddenly, there's like this midlife or quarter crisis because they hit the goal that they've been, you know, their brain has been wired to pursue for so long and now it's done. And there's this void of motivation. I think you serving a purpose greater than yourself that you recognize will extend and require work well beyond your lifetime. To me, it just portrays a lot of wisdom. And that's just one piece of what you said that I don't want anyone to miss.
1: And, you know, I would say never mistake Perfection for progress and progress for perfection. You know, just because 100% of the work is not done doesn't mean the progress is not highly impactful. And, you know, the law of large numbers is our enemy. You know, everybody like statistically, if the income gap between women and men is not closed um, 100%, then we haven't made progress. Well, ask the one woman who is getting paid very well. And it made a difference. The progress made a difference to her life. And that means her family's life and her children's family's life. So, you know, we must celebrate success with every one person who has a good outcome and not let those stories be lost in the statistics a little bit, you know, which is mm-hmm. kind of a little bit opposite of my engineering self, because you know what I mean? Like if you keep saying, oh, if 10% yeah. of the US population doesn't succeed, I'm not going to try to make one person's. Life better. What
0: is that about? Mm-hmm. Like the end I have a bit of an engineering mind too. My team will tell you sometimes to their chagrin. It's the problem solving part of our neurology, right? It's it's seeing problems, fixing problems to completion. What's interesting, what you just said that I want to touch on, and I think is a nice segue into a few other questions I wanted to ask. You talked about celebrating the one person whose life has changed and has experienced the benefits, been a beneficiary of the structural changes that we're making of the progress. That's one thing that's really struck me about you, Gunjan, in our conversations is, you know, if we're having conversations and I'm like down about FTX and upset about the immorality that we see in finance, you're like, but Ross, in our last one-on-one, you're like, Ross, we should celebrate the good. And I'm like, oh yeah, we should, we should. So what I would love to do with, with a few questions that I want to ask is to celebrate the good together that finance does. My first question for you, media has portrayed the worst of finance from the Wolf (laughs) of Wall Street to the Big Short. However, we both know there are so many people in finance that care and want to do good, and that finance facilitates so much positive impact in the world. Um, How would you compare and contrast finance even just 15 years ago, back in 07, 08, 09 to today in 2023?
1: Yeah, you know, I and thank you for saying that. You know, it's not like I'm just a giddy poliana, right? Because I mean, most people who know me, you know, we, we run large businesses. We have, but you can't drive in a friction-free world. <laughs> so just sort of agonizing over friction just sort of loses the fact that you're driving. That's why that's my sort of message to a lot of sort of younger professionals who are thinking about our industry to put it in context. But boy, the media narration is so. Hilarious. I see it from the points of views of my teenage sons, right? Because they actually do believe that that's this is what happens in my life every day. And it's uh, nonstop. You know, you mentioned too, but even the press coverage is all around Bernie Madoff and the long, you know, and FTX now. So so, so just putting that aside, let's just look at the arc of at least my personal observation of the industry. I joined in the mid-90s when the uh, long-term capital Russia bond scandal was happening, which I won't go into, but at that point it was like, this is the end of hedge funds and international uh, investing and nobody will ever do global investing. And that's just, we just do it better. We, you know, we create guardrails and do it better. But what's most clear to me, because I was in leadership positions, is the compare and contrast around the 2008 timeframe between 2020. These were the two big crises in the industry in my sort of short-term period. And in 2008, the industry's response was very much to protect the shareholders' interests. There was mass layoffs. There were defaults on loans across a very broad set of consumers. A lot of personal hardships happened. A lot of mistrust between consumers, employees and management of big banks. You mentioned um, Occupy Wall Street, Occupy Boston. So sort of that was the context of the industry's response and the response to the industry's response in 2008 and eight and nine. So now let me move forward to what happened in 2020. When COVID hit, and I will tell you that day in March is very clear in my mind because it was so sudden to us. The stock market's nose-dived. And 20 plus million people lost their jobs in weeks. There was no precedent for that kind of shock to the economy. When we grouped together as a management team, we were very worried about the health of a company. But we were also very worried about the anxiety and shock our teams were feeling. And we were very, very, Tuned in to what would happen to people who had had a sudden loss of income. So, what happened? We, as an industry, came out with very real assurances against layoffs. We modified millions of loan documents to give people just a little room to manage the new set of affairs without defaulting, without losing homes, losing cars. We sent all are people who could go back home to work from home. It was a different response from the industry because we learned something. You know, my favorite quote, which I think is like literally imprinted in my inner brain, is a 19th century Dutch quote. I'm, I'm sure other people have said, which is that's just the version of the quote I live in, is trust comes on foot and leaves on horseback. So. It takes a long time to build trust. And we lost it like this in 2008. But over the period of time in between and how we responded to 2022, we are building that trust. And the industry, in my mind, feels different. I can see the vocabulary is different. Our decision frameworks are more... More nuanced across the needs of multiple stakeholders. So, you know, at the risk of sounding a little bit like a recruiting advertisement, which this one is a little bit, because I would like your audience to give us a chance to see that it is an evolving industry. That we take very seriously this notion of not losing trust in the system.
0: Again, thanks for sharing, Gunjan. That quote it uh, it, it has me thinking. Um, trust comes on foot and leaves on horseback. It, it, you earn it slowly and you lose it quickly. Yeah. It's uh, I remember um, my stepfather once, who was in Wall Street, telling me he's like, Brooklyn, uh, Italian who spent his whole life in Brooklyn. He's like, you know, it took me 50 years to build my reputation and I could have lost it in five minutes.
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> you do that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyone who knows my stepfather is probably laughing hearing that. And anyone who doesn't is like, what is this guy doing? Uh, it's it's really interesting that you share that. As you look at how much time it takes to build trust, when you look at the next 15 years, you know, we've sort of reflected on the contrast of the last 15 years, you know, quickly, what are your thoughts on how over the next 15 years, the the financial industry continues to evolve and continues to earn trust?
1: Well, you know, I live by the principle of balance, much like I don't want to be I don't, I'm not proud of having been imbalanced around sort of too much attention to sort of bottom line profits only. I don't think the industry should go and become sort of weak because a strong, thriving financial sector is very important for the country and actually for the globe, especially given the U.S.'s sort of stability factor in what our currency does for the whole world. So I would like it to be a highly competitive highly served, well-run, well-managed industry, but with balance. This concept of stakeholders um, and our obligation is equally real to all of them, should become more and more ingrained in how we make decisions. And at any one short moment in time, a decision might be more favorable or less favorable to one stakeholder, but with the intention over the long-term to create healthy organizations, that create healthy communities and healthy customers and healthy employees. So that would be sort of my vision for the industry is sort of good balance, good sound balance.
0: Thanks, Kunjan. Another topic that we could dive into for hours, I'm sure. I know we only have a few minutes left and your time is very valuable. I would love to move into my rapid fire round where I'm going to ask you a few quick questions and you just share the first thought that pops into your mind. Does that sound good? Okay, sounds good. Okay. We talked about celebrating. What are some of the real, tangible, positive impacts that you've seen finance have on your customers that motivate you and inspire you?
1: Oh, my God. You achieve something you want to achieve, you know, whether it was sort of a new pair of jeans or your new house or you don't worry, you know, you don't worry. Peace of mind.
0: Peace of mind. You have an incredibly busy schedule. I can only imagine what your calendar looks like managing the organization you manage. You've selflessly devoted time and energy to many social service organizations, PBS, Junior Achievement, the American Red Cross. Why are they important to you and how do you recommend younger professionals can get back?
1: You know, I love it, right? Because you know, we we as I am surrounded by a lot of sort of privileged lives, and I do worry a little bit about completely losing touch with reality and what what really happens. And these organizations, they do such good work, and you know, any anything I can do to be a little bit helpful to sort of what they are able to accomplish, it's um, it feels wonderful. It it's satisfying.
0: Okay, final rapid-fire question. Actually, I'm going to throw a bonus question in. Second yeah. to last rapid-fire question. What is one of the best books you've ever read that you would recommend everyone reads? Oh, my God. Best
1: books. Uh, that, that's a very unfair question, but I'll pick one that is just, uh, <laughs> uh, and then give you three books. Um, uh, there is a book called The Nine, which is the functioning of the Supreme Court that I think is very good. In a, in a different element, there's a book called The Professor and the Madman, which is the making of the English Oxford uh, Dictionary uh, that, uh, that I recommend. I, I actually don't recommend business books because I feel like I'm doing work. That's like giving people homework assignment, although there are many, many good ones. Uh, <laughs> and what I read right now, just recency factor, is the book called The Cell. By um, Siddhartha Banerjee, which is sort of just an extraordinary sort of depiction of what medical sciences have been able to do. So if you're ever feeling uninspired, go read that.
0: Amazing. Three recommendations. We get three times (laughs) what we're asking for. Gunjan, always providing outsized value. Thank you. Final question. You've been so generous with the time you've given to scholars of finance from speaking at our symposium in Chicago in 2021, the time you spent with me to coming here today on the podcast. What stood out to you about our mission at Scholars of Finance and why would you encourage others to support the work?
1: Well, It's rather selfish, so I apologize for that. But I do want to attract, you know, young, high integrity future leaders to our industry because that is how we do the work we do for our customers. You know, the right mindset where you're anchored around sort of not the glamour, and the career and the comp and all of that, there's plenty of in this industry, but just, just sort of a sort of centered, moral-grounded set of people, and I need more and more of them. So if you can create some of those and you can find them and attract them to our industry, I'm very grateful. And that's the part of your mission I like a lot.
0: Thank you, Gunjan. Thank you so much for your time today. What a wonderful conversation. And I cannot wait to hopefully have you on again one day. And I just appreciate everything. Appreciate the time. Appreciate your insights. Thanks again.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.